If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the things that is quite significant to me is the importance people placed on the afterlife. This changed from 1348 and those who were healthy genuinely started to turn their attention to what they were leaving behind and how they wanted to be commemorated, how they wanted their soul to be protected because it was all about the soul really. Hello and welcome to this new History Extra podcast series, The Black Death. I'm Ellie Cawthorn and this is episode 5. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at spiritual responses to the Black Death and revealing how it made medieval people increasingly preoccupied with death, sin and the afterlife. For today's podcast, I was joined by the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr. Helen specialises in the medieval period and she's currently working on a book about England in the 14th century. So Helen is well placed to understand the vast impact the Black Death had on people and communities at the time. It changed everything and I think that that is why for me it's so important and so fascinating and it can reveal so much about the responses to such a massive shift in in everything you know this was this shook up the world like the responses to that are so important and it can just give us so much information about people and the way they lived one of the key aspects of life in medieval europe and that's the area that we'll be focusing most on this episode was religion this was a force that shaped the cultural mores in europe and even the makeup of society Particularly in England and in other places in Europe, the country was divided up into parishes. Uh, So there would be a church at the centre of each parish and the parish that you lived in meant that you attended that church. So that church is where you would marry, you would baptise your child, you would attend mass, uh, you'd often bequeath your wealth, um, as was often the case. And this parish church was really the hub of your community and everything went through the church. As such, these parish churches and the preachers in them had a fundamental impact on people's everyday lives. Well, the church was, it was massively important in medieval society and it dictated the everyday. Um, The liturgy and the liturgical calendar was central to medieval life and there would be services and prayer throughout the day at at different points, particularly for the elite and and then even more particularly those assigned to a religious house like a um, monk or a nun. So days, weeks, months were based around this liturgical calendar and and observation of these were crucial. So, you know, some holidays that we still have today were 
was some of those days. And a person's relationship with the church was intended to be a two-way street. Everything went through the church. It was obviously Catholic, so um, arms were collected as a penitential practice. So donating to the church for priests to sing masses for your soul or the souls of your loved ones with the idea that when you died, you'd have a shorter time in purgatory. And that's an important backdrop to people's responses to the Black Death, that getting into heaven or out of purgatory required continual acts of piety and worship, whether that meant giving money, dedicating prayers or possibly heading out on a pilgrimage. As such, it's hard to underestimate the importance of the church in offering ordinary people a channel to God. The church basically dictated the way the the days of people, the lives, lives of people were lived. Everything moved around the parish church, as I already mentioned. And that's why, you know, there are so many parish churches or remains of parish churches that still exist today because of, because of their importance. They were sort of the most important building, the most important place to the community in the, in the 14th century. And they range from, you know, these massive cathedrals to these tiny little, tiny little churches. Because of its ubiquity in daily life, some of the most interesting and useful sources we have on the plague come from the church, whether that's chronicles, artworks or parish records. Something I think is a wonderful source is looking at some of the artistry of the period. So what people were focusing their attention on in regard to their patronage, how people look to be commemorated, art, art within churches. There are some amazing art that you see from the late usually the later 14th century in churches and two monuments sculptures that that sort of thing I think is really it, it gives us so much flavor and shape to, to the to the particularly the later part of the 14th century some of the chronicle accounts are really important and they are very informative as to sort of how the the social landscape was laid out you also would have to look at some of the church records as well. So you, one of the ways of being able to tell, for example, the impact of the plague was how many priests were sort of moving into different parishes and records of that sort of replacing deceased clergymen, which is something that we have quite a lot of evidence for because that was all recorded when so much for the general populace wasn't really recorded. We've heard in previous episodes about the varied response of priests, bishops and other religious figures in the Black Death. Some fled, but others stayed at their posts, tending to the sick and dying. Regardless of whether they left or stayed, religious figures were fundamental in how people responded to the crisis, largely because of the framework of thinking that they'd set up for understanding such apocalyptic-seeming events. The church interpreted the spread of disease as punishment for loose morals and unholy behaviour. You know, Henry Knighton, who was a chronicler based in Leicester, was particularly critical of the merchant classes because they were the purveyors of luxury goods. And, and they, he described them as deaf to the demands of modesty. Churchmen saw evidence of this fall from God's grace everywhere from indecent fashion choices to dishonest merchants and the disobedience of children. As well as ideas about what was to blame for the plague, religious figures also had thoughts on what should be done to combat it. The church really were the first to take the disease very seriously. And, you know, in the early stages, you're talking autumn 1348, 
the Archbishop of York. He he ordered processions to take place twice a week um, and a special prayer to be included in daily mass because it was believed that this was surely caused by the sins of men. Special masses were created for times of pestilence, alongside prayers to St Sebastian and the Virgin Mary. During an outbreak of plague in 1375, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Simon Sudbury, called for people to, quote, pour out unceasing prayers. For prayer is an immediate defence, an immolation of the enemy, a solace to angels and a pleasing sacrifice to God. We're focusing mainly on European Christianity in this episode, but there are some interesting parallels in Islamic societies too. Chroniclers in Damascus record large group prayers which implored God to lift plague from the city. We've spoken in other episodes about the violence against minority religious groups, especially Jews, in the aftermath of the Black Death. But I did want to mention one fascinating account by the traveller Ibn Battuta. He recounts a group prayer in Damascus, where among men, women, children and the elderly, there were, quote, Jews with their Torahs and the Christians with their Gospels. The need to appeal to the mercy of a higher power was greater than ever. And so absolution was a total priority. The church really was the, they were the leading authority within medieval society. And so when the church are preaching, what priests are telling their congregation was really important. So if, the, if they're telling the congregation there is this, this pestilence, as they called it, and it is a scourge of God for the sins of man, people are going to take that literally. So it really was believed to be a punishment, a divine punishment. So how did ordinary people respond to these messages from the church? The message that this plague was a punishment from God. One of the things that is quite significant to me is the importance people placed on the afterlife. And this becomes most apparent in the wake of the of the black the first wave of the black death because i think it's really important that we state at some point that this was something that came back again and again and again so we really see the response in those you know 1349 1350 51 etc but we do see people start to prepare their wills and i think this is really important because people would usually prepare a will at this stage if they were they were close to death rather than you know being healthy. <laughs> but this change from 1348 and those who were healthy genuinely started to turn their attention to, to, to what they were leaving behind, how they wanted to be commemorated, how they wanted the soul, their soul to be protected, because it was all about the soul, really. It was, you know, you gave money to the church, you donated, you lived a pious life to spend as little time in purgatory as possible. And you gave alms so you would pay to have masses sung for your soul to m- ensure that you would move through purgatory nice and quickly um, into heaven. And people really believed this. They believed this absolutely. And so in their wills, it's, it's what people were changing in their wills. What was the what was the priority? What did the act of actually clamoring to to leave a will mean? And it wasn't it was quite a difficult thing to leave a will, especially for women. Um, and you do see women in this point starting to prepare for for their eventual or inevitable death. Getting your affairs in order in case you didn't make it through is a fairly measured and considered response to a crisis like this. But some people turn to much more extreme reactions. 
in the hope of appeasing God's wrath and making it through the pandemic. One of the most extreme responses and probably the most famous one, which is the flagellants. So the flagellants moved through the country. They didn't stay in one place and they processed twice a day and they would move through the streets and they'd be singing and chanting. They were barefoot and they wore a a loincloth. So they were naked from the top down. Women weren't involved um, in this. I should say it was men. Women were um, not allowed to be flagellant, Um, not publicly anyway. Um, So they wore a loincloth from waist to ankle, so it was quite a long one. And um, they would whip themselves with a three-thong whip. So it was like one whip, but then it had three little sort of leathery bits um, at the end of it. And there would be something sharp that would be attached to each one. So it was sort of to cause them maximum pain, catch on the flesh. The German friar Heinrich of Hereford recalled witnessing flagellant processions and how, quote, when they whipped themselves the iron points became so embedded in the flesh that sometimes one pull, sometimes two, was not enough to extract them. Flagellants had been around for a while by this point, but their ranks swelled dramatically in the wake of the Black Death. They took their name from the whips they used on themselves, which were called flagella. The flagellants punished themselves in this way in order to seek God's forgiveness for their sins. And they used their processions to encourage those living in their towns and cities across Europe to do the same. And we know quite a lot about them because Thomas Walsingham, a chronicler who's based in St Albans, took particular interest in the flashlights. And he gave us a nice big description and he uh, described them to lash themselves viciously. And apparently when they weren't processing, it's like, you know, twice a day processions, they apparently wore normal clothes, but they uh, carried their whips around with them. <laughs> just in case. Um, but they weren't very they weren't very popular in England. They didn't they didn't stay, as I said, in one place. They moved through quite quickly, so they weren't sort of confined to one town. This point about the flagellants not actually being that popular in England is a really interesting one. They've become one of the most iconic images of the Black Death. But as Helen says, it's important to remember that not everyone subscribed to such an extreme response. It's really difficult to know how many people were involved. I suppose if they were particularly popular, maybe there would be more people involved in it. It might have been considered to be a bit extreme. It might be that people actually didn't like how freely this group of people were moving. Um, It could be that that was actually quite unsettling to have people entering a place when there is such a virulent epidemic in, in um, that is, you know, all-encompassing. So it could be that that is the reason that they found them particularly unsettling. Um, they didn't know what they carried. Maybe it was uh, the very visceral projection of sin that people found unsettling or uncomfortable. I think that they were considered to be this very strange, very macabre and quite harrowing snapshot of the general pervading mood in the wake of the Black Death. And those higher up also shared this idea that the flagellant's extreme response was not necessarily in keeping with the rest of the church. In 1350, King Philip of France issued an edict to suppress the flagellants, condemning them as a sect, quote, conceived in detriment of the Christian faith against the commandments of our Saviour Jesus Christ and as a great peril to the souls of the said people. Heinrich of Hereford expressed a similar disdain for the flagellants that he encountered. 
Just as persistent burrs often grow among the harvest, he wrote, so these unlearned and stupid people unfortunately and stubbornly usurp even the preacher's office with their penitential whips. Concerning religious and clerical matters, they do not think or speak wisely. Heinrich of Hereford also recounts a really revealing story in which two Dominican friars meet some flagellants in a field outside Meissen. He recounts how the preachers become, quote, so exasperated by their arguments that they wish to kill them, leading to a confrontation. The more agile preacher managed to run away from the flagellants, but the other was stoned to death by them. But in some parts of Europe, the flagellants did receive a somewhat warmer welcome. In other places in Europe, for example, in Italy, there was a similar group who were sort of less famous, but they were they were treated more like pilgrims. So they were actually a little more popular and revered in Italy, and they were called the Bianchi. So they practiced a formalized flagellation. And those involved, they would so they would fast before a procession and then they would perform a ritual with songs beneath a devotional image. So I suppose it was much more um, conventional in, in their practice and the conventional piety. And they wore white robes, which were open at the back for um, ease of whipping. And um, <laughs> the whole point was that they were enacting and sort of experiencing in the Tati, so the, the, the pain of Christ, they were imitating Christ's pain. And these processions were planned. So they had these predetermined routes that started and ended at a cathedral. Let's try to imagine for a moment what it might have been like to witness something like this. Living through a wave of disease that probably claimed the lives of people you knew, and then witnessing this dramatic, grisly spectacle in which it was declared that all you had suffered was in fact a punishment from God. It must have been quite a powerful image to observe, especially if you were living in a society whose main fear was 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 the was divine punishment, and you had these sort of chambers of hell that you could move through. Think of this: this was the age of Dante's Inferno. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And what about those who took part in these kind of processions? It's hard to imagine how you'd be motivated to take such a dramatic course of action. But as Helen told me, that mindset is easier to comprehend if we look at the dramatic imagery that medieval people were faced with. When you look at some of the art that was produced in this period, if you're looking at things like wall paintings that still survive in some churches, these are such powerful images. The art that's coming out of Europe at this time, because obviously we lost so much of ours in the Reformation, so much of it is all about the end of the world. It's all about that sort of doomsday vibe. 
you've got, you know, the circles of hell. You've got these fanged demons rising up from hell just to ensnare naked people whose souls are trying to clamber towards heaven, but they're being pulled back down towards hell. It's so visceral. And can you imagine something I think that we can really realise is that the amount of images that we are faced with every day, like in today's world, I think it's, it's, it's true that like, so in an entire lifetime, a medieval person would see the same amount of images that we see in one day. So you can imagine how people would react to that, thinking that that was their reality. So you're really living in this sort of age of peril and fear. So the flagellants, to drive somebody, what would drive people to do that, to, in, to publicly self-flagellate and be these sort of, believe in this, this sin that they have committed, the sin of mankind. It's almost unfathomable, I think, for us now to really, I don't think it's possible to really get inside the heads of, of people who are living through, through the Black Death um, in that respect when we think about the penitence and what that meant. In this febrile atmosphere, with very few sources of information available, it was easy for wild and terrifying stories to take hold. William of Blofeld, for example, reported rumours he had heard were circulating around Rome. These rumours said that the Pope would meet a violent end, after which the Antichrist would reveal himself. And the contemplation of death was made all the more immediate by the fact that the dead were literally piling up at the time. As well as worrying about preserving people's souls after death, another issue the church had to deal with was what to do with their bodies. It became clear quite quickly that the churchyards were often reflecting, they were small, so reflecting the size of a parish. So a good way of looking at this is if you think about London as a city, and if you look at the city of London, right in where like the the cheese grater and all the big high-rise buildings are today, you still have little kind of churches and parishes around there. And if you think about how many churches are dotted around that small part of that small snippet of London, those were separate parishes, so how tiny they were. So if you think they had a little churchyard and then you had all these dead people descending on this churchyard, I mean, there's no way they were going to be able to contain the newly deceased. So there were some arrangements to excavate and move the bones of the previous dead and they were sort of kept in like an ossuary somewhere. But that was very successful because there were just so many people dying there wasn't enough space. So also practically to contain the disease and the spread of disease, you don't really want to be burying people who are infected within the sort of proximity to the living. So cemeteries were um, consecrated and they were um, kept outside the city walls and they were brought into use. They were massive plague pits, basically. And by sort of having them sort of consecrated as holy ground, they weren't given sort of these formal ceremonial funeral rites. They were sort of just buried on consecrated ground in in mass pits, in large pits, which we know because they have been excavated since. So East Smithfield was a main site. There was a site called uh, Spittlecroft as well. And then there was another, which I find really creepy, um, in the northwest of the city, which was harrowingly named No Man's Land. And so there was a plague pit there as well. These constraints on burial had a really interesting impact on ideas about death and how to adequately commemorate those who died. Burial, it became a real problem in the midst of play because death and commemoration was so important to people. You know, dying well was 
a an incredibly important thing. You know, we looked at the 16th century, late 15th, 16th century, there were books written about how to die well. <laughs> you know, it was a considered an art, an art form to die well. So this death and commemoration was an entire industry in the late Middle Ages. Um, and preparing for death was an accepted part of life. You know, people took great care over the process. And I would argue it's, you know, it's even, it's really into the modern period now that we don't allocate the same attention and detail and care to, to the process of death. Many of the means of commemoration that people had previously invested great amounts of time and money into were no longer achievable in a time of plague. You know, at this point, elaborate tombs were frequently commissioned to great expense and people took care over their wills, often bequeathing money and goods to the church, or as I've talked about um, previously, examples of people who invested in the church and because they wanted their names and their um, their family to be commemorated and remembered within you know daily church life and practice because they wanted their souls to be remembered in perpetuity in the hope that people would pray for them. Uh, memento mori, you know, the whole art of memento mori, it was hugely important in the in the in the 14th century and and beyond. And the plague really stopped this. So the stone industry, the mason industry was stopped because there was nobody to there was nobody to make these tombs like people were dying all over the place you might have a mason for a few days and then he'd die of plague and then you'd get another mason and then you might die of plague it was just it was mad everything just stopped so what did people do instead so as a means of burial and this this memento mori culture more people turn to alternative means and if you could you, you know we talk about these plague pits that was largely the the peasant class people who couldn't afford to be commemorated in in this way but one of the things that people did turn to and i suppose what unified it was a big unifying and leveling part of the commemorative culture in the 14th century was um brasses so monumental brasses which if you go to your a church nearby you, a local church, especially if it is um, a 12th, 13th, 14th century church, you may well have a monumental brass in your church. And this was a popular trend that continued way into the 18th century. These are sorts of plaques that were laid into the, the ground of the church. People sort of nodding like, yeah, okay, no, I know exactly what you meant. They're, but at this point, they would not usually be figurative. So they would depict um, the person or the, or the people. So these brasses were, they continued to be produced throughout the, throughout the Black Death because they just weren't as difficult and time, as time consuming. Although the style changed because obviously they were employing people who were less skilled. So there were some like wobbly lines here and there, which are quite, which are quite evident um, in some of them. These new means of memorialising the dead aren't just interesting from an art history perspective. Because how you died was so important, the art that surrounded it can tell us a lot about what really mattered to people at the time. Often you'd have if somebody has uh, had served in war, if he was a knight or if he was a soldier, be depicted in armour. You'd often have shields, so you'd have all your sort of heraldic um, emblems peppered on these on these. Um, brasses and you would have this border that would have you know whatever you had been had requested it could be a prayer or it could be details of the deceased um, but you'd have maybe somebody with details of their their 
wives there's one that i love which is um a particular brass that's like this very big man in the middle and then four of his little wives um either side it does tell us you know what were people's what was the priority for people what we consider to be important remains important and i think that 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 was the case for people in the 14th century as well you know the commemoration and being remembered and making sure that you are protected um, in the afterlife was, for them, was eternally an important thing. And so one of the ways we can see this is through this growing brass industry. And, you know, moving, leading on from that, I think one of the most remarkable and powerful changes in commemoration that we see after the plague, so we're seeing more in the 15th century, but the very late 14th century, is these incredible cadaver tombs. And if you haven't seen these, I think you should go and Google it because they're so powerful and terrifying and they are humbling. So it's, you know, the, the body of a, a deceased person, uh, you know, you've got this person in their robes, whether they're a priest or a king or a queen or whoever. And below them is, it's, an, it's almost like an open casket and you see this emaciated corpse that is being chewed or eaten by worms or it's half decomposed. And this is all sculptural. And the whole point was to sort of demonstrate that death is coming to us all and there is no escape from death. And really it's humbling because all we are is this sack of meat and flesh and water and bone. And that is what these tombs were meant to represent. So it really made people face death head on And, you know, the poet Dante describes in his Divine Comedy, he says to look downward, that is the way you will find some solace. So it's almost like there is solace in this inevitability. So he's instructing us to look at the floor, probably at these memorial brasses, because of the inevitability of death. That may sound very bleak, but more hopeful symbols can also be found in this new commemorative art. So on a lighter note, like I suppose another change in commemoration that we see just at the end of the Black Death and even in the sort of just after it. And you see it earliest in these brasses, but then later on when, you know, the population had risen again, you start to see it in the tombs as well. Is there's, there's this lovely gesture of hand clasping in couples. And this is something you might be more familiar with, which is a real trend in the second half of the 14th century. You don't really see it at all before the 14th century. And it's specifically in England that you see it. So a couple are literally ha- shown holding hands. They've got their, you know, their hands clasped on their tomb. I suppose it's just another way that we can look at the what it meant to live in a world around the plague and around death and around inevitable death and mass death. How, what was it about this gesture that was important to people at this point? So was it relative to the importance of unity through marriage as you know, fulfilling a contractual obligation, and that was seen as an important thing. But it also could be read as a gesture of love and respect, so that, you know, togetherness and marriage is something that transcends death and time. It's a testament to a time, and it's it's a snapshot of, some, of a person's life that they wanted to leave for the viewer going forward. So they wanted to leave that for us to see um, in the future, and in the hope that we would pray for their souls and in purgatory in heaven. The fear of death is a pretty universal experience. But as we can see from the outpouring of artwork, wills and public acts of penitence following the Black Death, I think it's fair to say that ideas about the afterlife 
had a heightened immediacy and intensity at the time. Absolutely. I think that we live in an age of security in science and medicine and the belief there is definitely like an arrogance that we have now that we can just defeat defeat inevitable death. And I think that it was a very different attitude in the 14th century because it was it was an inevitability and it doesn't mean that it was less painful and it doesn't mean that it was people just were used to it. I think there has been, you know, you do, I have been asked that question, were people just used to it? And I think to an extent, yes, people were used to the threat and I think people were used to losing loved ones, but I don't think it was something that one would ever go, well, it's a bit easier (laughs) because I'm used to it. Like, I don't think it was like that. And I think that we can definitely see even today, you know, so centuries later, we can see evidence of how how visceral and how painful and how terrifying it must have been for people. So sort of, it, you know, even though it was very different and we probably can't quite comprehend what it must have felt like, I think we can definitely see examples of that fear and the and terror of this God-given pestilence on man. Like it must have been a pretty severe um, reality to have to to face. Next week, we'll be looking at the long-term impact of the plague. We'll be using England as a case study to explore its dramatic restructuring of society and charting how its effects could be felt for hundreds of years. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.